morning. That's a scene from the 1992 Barcelona Olympics, a man by the name of Derek Redmond. He was expected to win the 400-meter dash, and instead he tore a hamstring just seconds into the race. And that was his dad, who you saw, who came out of the stands and finished the race with him. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, it is a hard subject that we will talk about this morning. But the grace that exists in the subject is worth the conversation. So Lord, I ask just both for conviction and for grace. Both for broken hearts and forgiveness that heals. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Olivia, and you've probably heard me say before that right now I've been teaching gymnastics at my daughter's gymnastics gym, something I'm not good at and know nothing about, but I'm having an okay time doing it. I'm in with the preschoolers, and my boss who trained me is very serious about these preschoolers. And everything is about order and going from one place to another in the proper way at the proper time and doing things the right way, and I'm making her absolutely nuts. So she taught me that when we move from one place to the next that you're supposed to say freeze and tap your knees. And then every, all the kids are supposed to stop and do this, look at you and say back, and listen very carefully. And then from there, you tell them to put a little glue on their hands and stick their hands on their hips and quietly tiptoe to the next spot. And that's all fine, but there are three. So I thought it was a better idea that instead of saying freeze and tap your knees, I yell, all aboard. To which they all yell back, the fun train. (laughs) And I've taught them to kind of, you know, throw a little hip shake in. And then I yell, woo, woo. And they all line up, and we disco to the next spot. And I watch my boss look at me out of the corner of her eye, and I know I'm making her crazy because it's messy, and it's loud, and it's not in perfect order. And it makes her very uncomfortable. But there are three. And it's fun. And they like the fun train. One of the things we hate talking about in church is sin. Because it's messy and it's uncomfortable. We don't mind talking about sin in past tense. The things we've done way back when. We don't mind talking about sin outside of these walls and how sad the world around us is and how sinful the world around us is, but we don't like to talk about it in here, in present tense, in our own lives, because it's messy and it's uncomfortable. But the conflict arises that we're all sinners. The conflict arises that though we are saved, we still live in this flesh and we struggle every day. The truth still is that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, like Paul, all can sit here today and say, that which I want to do, I don't do it. And that which I don't want to do, I keep struggling with it over and over again. John says, if we say we are without sin, that we are liars. But we don't want to talk about it. And yet we're sinners. 
And if we ignore it, if we aren't willing to bring up the subject, there's a huge danger because suddenly it becomes shameful. Suddenly it becomes just us and our sin. You see, we want the Facebook version of Christianity. We want the pictures that are angled just right with the perfect filter so that we look a certain way. We want to post the pictures of that 30 seconds when our house was clean. We're going to post the pictures that the one time the cake we made actually isn't tilted to the right and running off the plate. Because that's neat and orderly. And it's easy to accept. It's easy to love. And yet what if I told you that it is the most isolating thing we can do to one another? Because we are left alone in our sin. And yet we're all struggling. When I first looked at this one-hit wonders, the idea was that you would talk about, that we'd have all these different speakers and they would each talk about a decision they made or a moment in time where they chose God and it made all the difference. And my first thought was, I'm barely limping along. I can't think of a single moment where I made some great choice for God and it made all the difference. You see, I relate much more to David, who did great things and also fell into great sin and struggle. I relate much more to Peter, who walked on the water and then lost faith and sunk quickly, who did the one thing he swore he would never do and denied his Lord. I have spent much more time in Lamentations than I have in any other book of the Bible. But what if I told you some of our greatest moments in our faith? That my greatest moment in my faith was the moment I fell and decided to get back up. It was a series of choices over a period of time that left me in a place that I swore I would never go. And left me with the choice to stay there or get out. You watch that video. Do any of you have any idea who won the race? I have no clue. You watch that video and you forget completely about the seven other runners who ran it perfectly and to their best ability. Why? Because we can all relate to the one who fell down. Because it was a much more powerful moment that he got up and finished than those who were perfect. So why are we so scared to talk about it? Because our greatest moments can be found in those darkest places. The book of Micah is a prophet, uh, the prophet Micah prophesied in the time that Israel was struggling in sin. The great nation that had sworn they would follow God and do all his commands had done everything but. And he prophesied against them all the way into their captivity by Assyria. And the book is broken up into these three prophecies, each first condemning their sin and then giving a promise and a blessing over them. 
And in the last section, chapter 6 and 7, he gives them this charge. He says, did you think your sacrifices were enough? That you could just sacrifice again and again? He says, he has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And then in the beginning of chapter 7, he brings the charge against them that they had failed in all three. They had traded justice for idolatry. Instead of showing mercy, he says in the beginning of chapter 7 that you couldn't even trust your own friends or family because everyone did such evil against one another. They did not walk humbly with God. They had risen up in their own pride and had said they did not need him. And then there is this verse, Micah chapter 7, verse 8. He says, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my It is what changes everything. In this moment, Micah identifies himself with the sins of the nation and declares my favorite promise in the entire Bible. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will bring his light to me. He acknowledges the repercussions of the sins. He acknowledges the reaction of the nations, which is the reaction we all know. They call themselves Christians. In verse 9, we find out the nations were literally saying, where's their God? These people who do these great evils, where is their God? Is that not what they say when we fall into sin? Is that not why we fear talking about it? Because what are they going to say? And they call themselves a Christian. But the power of our Christianity has never and never will be in our own perfection. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will bring my light. That word fall literally means to tumble down. To not live up to. To sit in darkness was a term that was used throughout the prophets and the Old Testament that literally spoke of hiding your sins. Being fearful to come into the light of God, but sitting in a dark place convinced that it would not be seen there. He speaks both of the outward and obvious sins of the people and the things they were hiding in their heart that they didn't want anyone to know. But the testimony of the people was not in their perfection. Your testimony, your Christianity is not in your perfection. Your testimony is the getting up and the letting of the Lord in. That word rise is an amazing word. It doesn't just mean to stand up. It literally means to be established to be founded, to be strong. It is a complete redemption from the fall. 
And light is the only thing that can cast out darkness. Last summer, I actually had this verse tattooed on my foot. I didn't wear shoes today, so y'all could get the visual effect. (laughs) I got this tattooed on my foot, and two days later, I was walking downtown Corvallis, Oregon, where I'm from, and there was a huge Birkenstock sale, which you know, if you know anything about Oregon and the hippies that live there, it was a big deal (laughs) that there was a Birkenstock sale. And I'm walking down the street with my 150-pound dog in one hand and and a bag in the other, and the dog went right, and I went left, and I hit the pavement. And I had a few small scrapes, and I was bleeding, but there were Birkenstocks in sale, so nobody got up. (laughs) And I pulled my dog, and I got myself up, and I continued to limp down the road, but I had my dog, so I couldn't go in to clean myself up. And this nice woman outside of one of the stores saw that I was, like, dripping blood as I went down the street, and she said, let me help you. So she ran in, and she brought me dry toilet paper straight from the bathroom and a couple of bandies that were so old I couldn't get them to stick to my skin. So needless to say, a few days later, I had a horrible infection in my leg. And the awkward situation of this horrible infection on my left leg from falling and a verse on my right leg that says, though I fall, I shall rise. (laughs) And I went into the doctor, and sure enough, I had a staph cellulitis infection, and it was pretty bad. So she wanted to send me to the hospital, and I said, please don't. Let's just try to get rid of it. So she gave me a shot and these really strong antibiotics, And the next day I came back, and it was worse. And this very sweet doctor puts her hand on my knee, and she says, I don't know how you feel about God, but if you're a person who prays, now would be a really good time. And I thought, I don't think you're supposed to say that to people. (laughs) (laughs) But it kept getting worse and worse. And eventually it did. And it was prayer, I think, was a part of that. But you see, the testimony wasn't in the falling down. It wasn't the left leg scarred and bruised and battered and infected. It was the right leg that though I fall, I shall rise. Though I sit in darkness. As I was talking to my husband about this, his response to me was, I feel like you're kind of celebrating mediocrity. Shouldn't we be striving for perfection? Shouldn't we be striving? I said, absolutely. But the problem is, we're still three. (laughs) We're still sinners. So we're never going to attain. But my husband said to me, so then why do we even bother getting up? If we're going to stumble again, If we're going to struggle again, why on earth would we not just sit there and not bother to get up? In 1895, a physician declared that women should not ride bicycles. And his reason was that it creates what he called bicycle face. Quite literally, his words were that the unconscious effort to balance while still maintaining the upright position and exert energy created an unpleasant face in, the, in women. <laughs> he described it as wearied, exhausted, flushed, though sometimes pale, drawn lips, and the beginning of dark bags under the eyes. He said cycling as a fashionable craze has been attempted by people meaning women, 
unfit for any exertion. They're not able to do it. They're not fit for it. They shouldn't even bother. It sounds so silly, and yet don't we say the same thing? I'm never going to get this right. I might as well not even try. I'm going to keep stumbling. I'm going to keep failing. Why get up again? As a trainer, I could tell you all the benefits of bicycling, but I'll spare you. And all the reasons that women are completely capable of exertion, but I'll spare you. But what reason do we have in Christ to get up? Micah gives it to us. In verse 18, he says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Isaiah writes, You will blot out my transgressions for your sakes. What draws us up? What draws us out? Is a God whose love and forgiveness and the benefits of walking into that far outweigh any bicycle face you might get in the process. It says that he will pass by our transgressions, that he will cast them into the sea, and that he subdues our iniquities. Pass by. Literally, we will be punished way less than we deserve. That is grace. Not only getting what we don't deserve, but not getting what we do. He will cast them into the sea, literally to never be able to come up again. He does not bring them back up. We do, but he does not. And he subdues our iniquity. He, it literally means he removes the power they have over us. You see, we get back up because even though we're going to fall again, we get a little stronger each time as we experience the forgiveness and grace that God is offering in that. We experience the power of grace in our lives to not do it the next time. So we stumble a little less. Never attaining perfection this side of heaven. Getting a little closer to God with each time. So we get up and we come out. It says that his anger is but for a moment, that he delights in mercy and compassion. He's not holding it against us. We get up because there is compassion and mercy to be had if we do. We rise because it is better to live in that than in fear and in darkness, and in shame. Because the option is to stay hidden when there is mercy and compassion and steadfast love waiting for us if we will just get up. Micah says that he speaks the truth. 
and he shows faithfulness to the promises he's made. We get up because God is not done with us. There is nothing that we can do that can end our relationship with him or the purposes he has for our lives. David committed adultery. He fell into sin. And he is still named in the lineage of Jesus Christ because there was nothing that he could do that could separate him from the love of God or the purposes and plans that God had for his life. Peter denied the Lord, though he swore he wouldn't, and yet God restored him and he became the father of, our, of the church. He turned the world upside down. We get up because we're not done. I think we will all look back on that day and we will see that we all have limped across the finish line with our Father's arms wrapped around us, but we are not finished until we get there. And his purpose for you now is no different because of anything you've ever done. That's why we get up. It is God who comes out of the stands, who brings light our darkness and it is in that moment that we truly learn what it means in Micah 6 8 to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly I got a phone call from my best friend from college her husband had come to her and he had committed adultery and it was short and it was brief but it happened and he was a he's a pastor down in San Diego and he came to her and confessed, and they went to the leadership of the church, and she called me. She said, I feel like Minnesota is obscure enough that I can call you because I've been told I can't tell anyone or talk to anyone about what's going on. She said, we're waiting to hear from the leadership of the church what we're going to do. And I got a message from her on Monday that the church has decided that they are going to send her family to Hungary. And she's devastated. She doesn't want to go. She's got kids who are established in their community who have friends and school and gymnastics and all these things. But the church has decided it is better to send them away. And they said, we want to give you time to heal. But the reality is they don't want to have to deal with it today. We'll send you away for a year, they said, and then you can come back. And I'll be honest, I don't understand. We have a father who comes out of the stands and embraces us and walks with us. And yet we as a church say when it happens here, you have to leave. How many stories have you heard? I went to church till I got a divorce and then the church said I couldn't come anymore. How many stories have you heard? I went to church at one point, but then I fell and the church told me I couldn't be there. Or people shunned me because of what I did. If we have received this love and grace of a father who comes out of the stands when we fall, how much more ought we to extend it to one another? How much more ought we to come out of the stands for one another? It was somebody in my life who sat down next to me eight years ago and said, I know you're angry, and I know you're hurt, but this is not the way to deal with it. 
And it was because of them that I got up. What effect might we have as a church if we quit casting people out? Because it's not comfortable. Because it's messy. That we start to come out of the stand for one another. Because we have received this grace. Lord, for each of us, there's different things we sit and, and ponder and hear. Lord, for some of us, it's time to get up. For some of us, we have sat in the darkness for too long. We need your light. Lord, more, we need your strength to put your arms around us and lift us. For some of us, we need to grant the forgiveness and love that we have received. Lord, teach us today what it means that you have cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. That your anger is but for a moment, but your compassion and steadfast love are here for us. Lord, teach us what it means to love mercy and walk humbly. 